The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 136 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not my present or past employers. I would never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I would never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So just a reminder, folks, we're on at least a dozen different playback mediums now. You can listen to any episode you like on our very own website at www.tf7radio.com. That's at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So we have a very, very special show for you this evening, folks. Uh, we're going to have three Tier 1 guests on the show tonight. That's right, three. And we're going to have one on each segment. And they're all set to appear at what is the first event of a four-part series at the University of Oklahoma on global risk and threats set for this Saturday, June 6th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Central Time. And we're also going to have the keynote speaker of that event with us this evening. So the first event is focused on the pandemic threat of uh, risk and impacts associated with COVID-19. And so, of course, Whenever you talk about global risk and threats, you're going to talk about cybersecurity. So I'm really excited to have these guests on with us this evening. If you want to register for the event, take a look at it. You can see the information online. It's ou.edu backslash price backslash GRTS for Global Risk Threat Series. Um, it's, going to be a great, it's going to be a great program. Uh, I registered for the event myself, and I'm definitely going to, I'm definitely going to tune in for the event. Um, so we're going to have three guests during our second segment of the show. Uh, after our first break, I'm going to be super excited to have Chi-Min Bo Lin with us. So Chi-Min is the CEO and president of Paradise Partners, which is an analytics-based global consulting, consulting firm focused on assisting companies in cybersecurity resolution, information technology, and digital marketing. Uh, formerly, she was the vice president of IBM Corporation, which is a multi-billion uh, dollar P&L organization, as everybody knows. She was recruited to scale growth, and she has served in multiple chief marketing, chief risk, operational, and board roles. 
where technology is a key backbone across the consumer, internet, industrial, financial services, energy, and healthcare sectors. So she was formerly elected to six public and private boards. Uh, she's been an audit chair. She's uh, also has several risk leadership positions in several countries uh, in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. And she's recognized as one of the 2019 top 50 board of directors in the U.S. by the National Association of Corporate Directors. Currently, she serves as board of director of a public industrial and consumer company. Um, and she's very well known and very well respected uh, around uh, the world in these, in these companies. She's um, a very good speaker. She's very um, recognized in the digital technology space. And that's why we're having her on today. Um, she's one of the top 100 CEOs in STEM, uh, as well as one of the most influential women in Silicon Valley, which is very cool. She's also inducted into the Hall of Fame for Women in Technology. So uh, lots of kudos and accolades here, uh, folks. Very well respected. Um, through 2018, she was a visiting professor in digital marketing and technology and includes AI and data analytics and cybersecurity at the Joint EMBA MBA program at Columbia University, London School of Business, and the University of Hong Kong. Now, if you haven't looked up this executive MBA, I strongly suggest you do so. If I was to go back and grab mine, I'm, I'm only two or three classes away from my MBA now, but if I was to start all over again and, and do something like this, I would definitely choose this, this program. Um, there's a lot of things attractive about this program. I love it, uh, especially because it's right here in New York and it also works with the London Business School and University of Hong Kong. Um, she's very well known for her thought leadership, turning disruption into opportunities and resulting financial results. She was invited to speak at various forums, including the United Nations, British Chamber, UBS, and Dow Jones. Her doctorate is in computer-based information systems and organizational change from the University of Houston. So our third segment of the show, I'm very proud to have Dr. Shad Satherwaite with us. And Shad is the Director of Executive Business Programs in Aerospace and Defense at the University of Oklahoma. It's a star-studded uh, crew today, folks. So before joining uh, the OU, Gene Rambolt uh, Graduate School of Business, Shad served as the Associate Dean for OU Extended Campus and Assistant Vice President for Continuing Education Academic Programs. He currently serves as the Faculty Advisor to the OU Student Veterans Association. So, Dr. Satherwaite is a colonel in the United States Army Reserves and served two tours in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom from 2003 to 2004, and then again from 2011 and 2012. He is assigned to the Army War College as a faculty instructor where he co-teaches the Defense Planners course. Dr. Satherwaite has been named Foundation for Defense for Democracies Academic Fellow and the President's Distinguished Faculty Mentoring Program Outstanding Mentor. He has also received UOSA's Outstanding Faculty Award, and his research focuses on political science, public administration, the media, and voting behavior, which, of course, we're going to talk to him about this evening because I talk a lot about cybersecurity and the elections. So this is very, you know, this is very interesting to get his opinion on how this is playing out. He's got a PhD in political science. He's also got an MPA. He's got a master's in strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College, and he also has a B.A. in political science. All right, he's a truly amazing American hero. 
And you're going to want to stick around for the entire show with us this evening, folks. There's no cutting out early today, trust me. So our first guest, uh, we're going to kick off the show this evening with none other than Thomas Fyan. So Tom is a, a cyber growth leader with in Willis Tower Watson's FinEx cybersecurity practice. In this role, Tom advances the company's integrated approach to cybersecurity aspects uh, of people, capital, and technology risk. So Tom previously worked as the chief strategy officer of ARC Network Security Solutions. He also served as the senior cybersecurity strategist in council with the Department of Homeland Security's National Protection and Programs Directorate. So while he was at DHS, Tom established and led the agency's cybersecurity insurance initiative in support of implementation of Executive Order 13636, improving critical infrastructure cybersecurity. So, of course, we're going to ask him about this. Uh, and we, we, we've been talking about cybersecurity insurance on this show for several different episodes. So it's going to be really interesting to get his view as someone who established that program in DHS um, when he was there. So to advance that effort, he created DHS's Cyber Incident Data and Analysis Working Group and a private public engagement forum that examined how a cyber incident data repository could help meet the information analysis requirements of the insurance industry and technical cybersecurity professionals. So Tom previously served as the staff director and counsel for the Subcommittee on Intelligence, Information Sharing, and Terrorism Risk Assessment with the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security. How cool is that to have him here with us tonight? So he's a former general assistant general counsel with the FBI and has also served in private litigation practice. He's got his JD from the University of Minnesota Law School and a BA from the University of Virginia. So I want to welcome our first tier one guest this evening, former senior cybersecurity strategist with the Department of Homeland Security and current cyber growth leader with Willis Towers Watson's Phoenix Cyber Practice, Mr. Thomas Finan. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Hey, thanks, George. Thanks for having me today. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, experience over at DHS uh, when you were a cybersecurity strategist mm -hmm. there. And... Um, you took a, a, an interest in cybersecurity insurance, and I think you launched the initiative over there. Why, why has the federal government take, taken such interest in this cybersecurity insurance? Like, what's the goal? What's the public policy here? Yeah, yeah sure. No, so DHS has a, a fantastic mission. You know, it's supposed to protect the nation's critical infrastructure from cyber and physical attack. But the dirty little secret in Washington, of which there are many, is that DHS actually has no power to make anybody in the private sector do anything. So as a strategist, I had to figure out, well, how do we get the private sector to make better investments against cyber risk? And you know, to be perfectly honest with you, I knew nothing about insurance except that I had homeowners and, and fire insurance. And I knew that the fire insurance market had done a really good job over a century or more of figuring out what controls if they were in place, would best prevent or mitigate a fire. So the question we were trying to figure out was, well, could the same thing happen with this new cyber insurance market that we're reading about? You know, do they know what controls work? And if they um, insisted on clients adopting them, would they in return get coverage that they wanted at a price that was attractive? 
And so I, I really started the work as a way to advance DHS's mission. We brought in a whole bunch of brokers and underwriters, but also chief information security officers and CROs, and we had economists and social scientists and a bunch of people in the room. And we talked about it and like, you know, what is the state of the market and can you incent better cyber investments? And I think back in 2012, 2013, when we started this conversation, the answer was not yet, but we really want to get there. And I think in 2020, we, we very much are. Um, I have to say, we thought this might be a two or three session sort of meeting series. We wound up meeting for about four and a half years because a lot of the underwriters really wanted to figure out what DHS was up to and then really have a safe space to have that conversation. And DHS was great because it did create sort of that opportunity to open up and really start cross-pollinating between government, the insurance industry, and the security, cybersecurity professionals that frankly had not been to the table up until that point. So this is very interesting. Cybersecurity insurance is a big part of the industry right now. Um, and obviously there's a lot of risk discussions when it comes to cybersecurity insurance. What were the outcomes that resulted from your work around uh, the insurance over at DHS and and what impact has it had on not only the kinds of coverage available, but also cyber risk management in general? Yeah, no, I, I think that there were a couple of conversations that came out of that, that workshop series that really have profoundly shaped the insurance market. And I think we're getting closer and closer to the nirvana state that we were hoping for, where you know companies that made wise investments against cyber risk would be seen as safer risks and as a result would be given coverage on more favorable terms. We're not there completely, but it, but it is starting to happen. What we heard early on in the discussion, George, was that, look, you know, we just don't have enough data to effectively price this risk. And so we started a group, it was known as the Cyber Incident Data and Analysis Working Group, or CDOG for short. And that arguably was the most awesome acronym in use across the federal agency agencies <laughs> at that time. Um, but we wanted to you know, focus squarely on data uh, and, and what value could a repository have in terms of better understanding cyber risk trends, the costs of an incident, and what kinds of controls should really be in place, depending upon what industry you're in. Um, and I, I think that what we ultimately were able to do was come up with what we ultimately were 16 data points about a cyber incident that not only the insurance folks in the room, but the CISOs and risk managers in the room felt would be valuable to share because it was data that they would use for analysis. So things mm -hmm. like, you know, what was the cost of an incident? How did the bad guys get in? How quickly was a vulnerability addressed? You know, what controls did you actually have and what worked and what didn't? And we also talked a lot about you know, sort of the obstacles that were in the way. You know, if we built a repository, who are going to be the folks saying no? And then how do we address their, their challenges? But there were three main things that I think flowed from the work. I, what I'm most proud of, frankly, is that we actually got the brokers and underwriters talking to chief information security officers in a sustained way. I mean, to be honest, the insurance industry was used to talking to chief risk officers, and maybe they'd give five minutes to a CISO during an annual renewal meeting. Um, and for their part, I think CISOs were pretty suspicious of cyber insurance because they saw it as something that was competing for their resources. You know, that why, why spend the money there when I can spend it on 
you know, a new control or prevention strategy. I do think we, we got uh, the, those walls sort of taken down, so to speak. And I think you see the insurance industry and the CISOs much more on the same page, which is great. Um, we came up with those 16 cyber uh, incidents uh, data points. What I did not really realize until I entered the insurance industry myself uh, a few years ago is that a lot of underwriters took those data points and started using them internally as a taxonomy to, to really organize the data that they were collecting from their cyber claims information. And it was a great way for them to start making sense of a lot of the data that they were collecting, but frankly, weren't entirely sure of what, what was valuable, what wasn't, how do we use this? And, you know, it was, it, it's really, I think, helped them better price and underwrite individual risks, um, which is great. And I think the final thing that I would mention is that we, for the first time as part of the CDOG effort, brought the issue of OT cybersecurity to the table for underwriters. Um, they didn't, they were very much focused on IT and privacy and understandably so, because that's where the losses were, but they didn't really know why a nation state or a cyber criminal would go after um, a company's infrastructure. And what we did is we had groups like the International Society of Automation come in and talk about their standards, but also how they were vulnerable uh, and how operational technology like SCADA systems could be really infiltrated to shut down a network and cause tremendous losses. And, and I think what's happened is you, you've now seen in the insurance market coverage that is increasingly going in that direction. You know, they want to cover network outage and system failure and, and address uh, and hopefully improve cybersecurity by giving coverage to OT-based organizations that are making wiser investments than peers. But I think it's earlier than what's been happening in the privacy space. But we got those things going, and that's how you solve problems. You have to figure out, you know, what are the key obstacles, foster some conversation, and then, and, and then you know, get people engaged in community to start to figure out solutions. So it was a great experience. So you've been a big proponent of organizations doing cybersecurity functions in this very ERM-friendly sort of cost-cutting way. In your view, who are the obvious and non-obvious cybersecurity leaders in any organization? And, and I'd like you to sort of break it down for us a little bit if you can. And I'd like to know your opinion too, if you think they're all working well together. <laughs> Great question. And I wish I had a perfect answer for you, George, but I, I, I do think cybersecurity ultimately has to be seen as a business problem, but also a business opportunity. Uh, and only if you're approaching it that way, do, al do, do resources get allocated the right way. And I continue to see a real disconnect between leaders in an organization who are super uncomfortable with cyber because they don't have technical backgrounds. So they like to shuffle off the whole issue to the CISO. And, and I also see chief information security officers who, you know, thank God they're there because they're brilliant and they know the tech really well, but they don't necessarily know how to translate what they know into business terms. You know, what, mm -hmm. what a CEO wants to know is, you know, what's the reputational harm if, if we have a loss or what's the financial impact? And, you know, I think ERM is great because it forces a conversation between those two organ, you know, those two uh, interest areas within an organization, where they start to figure out, well, what is a mission critical function for this business, and what information systems do those mission critical functions depend upon? And very often, this is the first time these leaders are having conversations 
with you know the cybersecurity professional teams that they have, but it does allow I think some mutual understanding to reinforce and grow. And what comes out of that is a much easier opportunity to justify a cybersecurity budget to buy those technical cybersecurity solutions that the CISO wants, but it puts it into a context so they understand what the impact, what is the business function that is going to be better protected because of that investment. And I think it frankly makes chief executives much more comfortable when they understand how that money is being spent in a way that ultimately benefits the business. I, I think historically you, you've, ERM has been great to foster that conversation. You've got the chief risk officer who's sort of looking at risk strategically across all business problems. You've got the CISO and you've got representatives from the, from the other higher echelons within the com company. The person who is missing sort of that non-obvious cybersecurity leader is frankly the head of HR. Uh, and I know that's somewhat controversial. Uh, frankly, when I tell HR leaders that they are cybersecurity players too. They sometimes run from the room so quickly they leave burn marks on the carpeting. Um, it's not what they're comfortable with. It's not what they know. But the point that I make back to them is, look, you know, about 63% of cyber incidents are caused directly by a company's people, its employees. And it's really the HR leader who can push the buttons and pull the levers that are already available to them to sort of change the risk culture. You know, what are the kinds of things that could be happening to sort of address, you know, what I call the carbon layer of cybersecurity, that human element. And it's very often training. You see, you see companies that are, are very focused on training. I think they could do a better job, frankly, of making it more differentiated to address particular roles and responsibilities. Um, but it's also things that, frankly, are directly in that HR leader's wheelhouse. What rewards and incentives could be established that would, you know, automatically encourage an employee to do the right thing or to at least stop and think about what the right thing is because they're going to be held accountable. There's going to be some benefit in terms of salary or promotion opportunity if they make cybersecurity part of their day-to-day -day DNA. And, you know, I, I call them my, my trio of cybersecurity superheroes. I think the HR leaders are getting more comfortable with that. I think training and, and talking about what's really needed is a logical nexus with the CISO especially. Um, but I, I think it's a trend we're going to be seeing increasingly because I, I do see that boards are waking up to the fact that, you know, the, the losses are very often originating with an employee, not maliciously uh, in most cases, um, but they just didn't know the right thing to do or they were distracted or they were stressed out and just didn't give the right thing to do, the right attention at that time. So if we can get those three, the chief risk officer, the CISO, and HR on the same page and cross-pollinating within that broader context of enterprise risk management, I think companies are going to do a much better job of prioritizing their key risks based on what's mission critical and then ultimately making a better investment that makes them safer over time. Yeah, I can't agree more. I think, you know, the insider threat or people are calling it insider risk in some organizations now is definitely going to be in the top 10 material risk of any large organization. Um, we also, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about cyber hygiene and having good cyber hygiene to eliminate, you know, 80, 90% of the cybersecurity issues that are out there, some of the threats that come in. It seems like cyber hygiene, a focus on that really does a cyber, a cyber security program a lot of justice. But we also talk about cyber vigilance. 
And so I'd like to ask you, what is cyber vigilance and why is it so important and how can organizations promote it throughout the enterprise? You know, to me, cyber vigilance boils down to one thing. It's about keeping cyber risk top of mind all of the time. And I think it's very important because in many organizations, cyber is too often treated as a once and done affair. You know, so think of the employee who does his or her annual cybersecurity training in a day, and then they don't learn anything new about cyber for the rest of the year. You know, or the company that celebrates Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October, and I have my pin from DHS that I wear proudly every October, <laughs> but then there's no follow-through in November and December. You know, or the organization that has a breach, you know, and it's addressed, but then there's no feedback loop to the employees. There's no lessons learned moment uh, that really you know, gives an opportunity for employees to learn about what happened and what could be done better. Maybe that's a missed opportunity. I, you know, every employee really needs to understand their responsibilities when it comes to cyber and whatever their role, the, the, their personal power to really make things better. And so I, I think what helps is an awareness strategy that starts at the top and makes relevant, you know, cybersecurity really to every employee. And on this point, I got to tell you, I'm reminded of my 11th grade gym teacher, Mr. Russo, who was also my driving instructor. And on the morning of my driver's test, I had gotten into my mom's 1987 Pontiac 6000 station wagon, complete with fake wood paneling. I fastened my seatbelt. And before I could make a move, Mr. Russo turned to me and said, you know, okay, Tom, you may now start your weapon. And I really hadn't thought of my mom's car as a weapon before, but what he was teaching me is something I apply to this day. You know, if I wasn't constantly vigilant about the harm I could cause with the motor vehicle, I could injure or kill somebody. And we have to get to the same place with cyber. You know, some companies out there have literally baked cybersecurity into their DNA through repetition. And I think that's really key. You know, repetition builds culture. And there's one CEO I know from my DHS days said that at the start of every meeting in his company, doesn't matter what the topic is, he dedicates five minutes to discussing emergency preparedness. So they might be meeting about their annual budget, but they kick things off with a review on how to do CPR or the location of the fire exits or the Heimlich maneuver. You know, you get the idea. But the message to the workforce is clear. Um, this company cares about emergency preparedness, knowing what to do in an emergency and how to do it is a leadership priority and people ultimately are going to be held accountable for that. I, I like that idea and I think the same thing can happen with cyber. You know, maybe they could dedicate at the start of a meeting, you know, five minutes on the need for password complexity or how to detect a phishing scam or the importance of using, you know, VPN when working from home. I also, you know, in talking to some of the HR audiences, at least the, the folks that don't run screaming from the room when I mentioned that they're cybersecurity superheroes, um, they, they talk about cyber forums, you know, where maybe you're meeting periodically, where you certainly have the CISO, but also non-technical employees. They're just having a discussion about what cyber risk is, how it could impact the company, and how it could impact them personally. And, and I like that idea because it's a place where, you know, uh, when people are hearing about a cyber incident in the press, those cybersecurity colleagues of theirs can put that into context and explain, you know, this is what happened. This is how it could have been avoided. 
this is how we would address it as a company if the same sort of situation were to happen to us. And by the way, you know, Mr. or Ms. Employee, this is what you could do. You know, and then it sort of becomes a team effort that isn't restricted just to that technical cybersecurity team. So at the end of the day, you've got to be creative, again, bringing that HR leader in. And I think that kind of approach really does keep employees on their toes. In other words, keeps them vigilant. Um, and I, I think it's, it's important. I, when I was at DHS, we talked about cyber vigilance as well. Um, the, the feeling across the, these stakeholders that had come into the group was that, you know, we really need the equivalent of Smokey the Bear for cyber. And we need to sort of create that sense of individual responsibility. You know, how do you prevent forest fires? How do you prevent your company from being breached, right? And so what they suggested was, you know, maybe we need someone like Cedric, the cyber savvy squirrel. <laughs> and, and we all laughed about it, just like you are now. But, you know, it, and it does sound silly. I mean, let's be honest. But, you know, I thought about it and I actually reported it up the chain to my leadership because, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a life-size squirrel that's greeting you in the, in the office every morning when you arrive with the cybersecurity message of the day, it doesn't matter what that message is. Chances are you're going to remember it. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, it, 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 cybersecurity can be fun um, and vigilance because it is so key and that keeping things top of mind is so essential, I think, for that, you know, successful uh, addressing of cybersecurity. Um, it really does require that collaborative effort across those three cybersecurity superheroes. All of them bring something to the to the to the puzzle, but each piece I think is critical to really having a more holistic approach that engages people better. Very interesting stuff. I mean, you know, changing the mindset and the way people think in the office is really really difficult. It's a big challenge. It's a much bigger challenge than I think it, uh, it gets. Uh, it doesn't get enough attention, right? It's enough. There's a lot bigger challenge than people think. And um, it's very, very important to be successful because everybody has a cybersecurity responsibility in the organization. I want to ask you a question about the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. They released a report earlier this spring with 75 recommendations for how the federal government should advance cybersecurity as a national priority in the years ahead, something that we talk a lot about on this show. So the commission noted that we as a society are really struggling with how to price cyber risk. And I know this is a big conversation in a lot of um, operating committees uh, across the country in terms of putting a, a financial price on certain risk associated with cybersecurity threats. So what's your perspective on this challenge and how do we start fixing this problem? I agree, George. This is a really important topic. And I do think that the commission got it correct but only partly. Um, what they recommended on this specifically was a new cyber risk modeling initiative that they wanted the Department of Homeland Security to run. Their idea is that, you know, if we model different kinds of cyber events, we can better figure out what they cost. And then the insurance industry can come in and respond accordingly. And I totally agree with that. It makes a lot of sense. I think modeling does illustrate, you know, what could be uh, in a way that, that makes it actionable. I'd like to save DHS a lot of work by telling them simply this. They really do need to talk to brokers and writers before they do anything. Um, and, and here's why. Over the last couple of years, the cyber insurance industry has analyzed a lot of data that they've obtained 
through cyber claims. And that's really how the insurance industry has historically evolved. The more data it gets, the better it can price risk and develop meaningful coverage. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon how you look at it, insurers now have lots of data about breach incidents that have been happening for years. And that makes sense. All 50 states today require that breach companies report their breaches. And a lot of that information is now public. Plus, they also see claims from their clients and they have a much better understanding of the kinds of privacy losses that are being sustained and by whom across which industry verticals. Where the insurance industry really needs help, though, is with operational losses. What does it cost when cyber criminals take down a SCADA or other industrial control system and shut down a piece of, of critical infrastructure for a week or two or, or four? And the answer, frankly, is, is we just don't know. And that's because companies aren't required to report this kind of information. These incidents may be happening fairly regularly, but they're certainly not publicized. And then add to the fact that coverage for OT-related cyber risk is relatively new, and you have a very important but nascent insurance market that really could use some help. So I think the commission called it right in that regard, because modeling really could help fill in the blanks where there's a lack of understanding. The need for modeling in the OT space, frankly, is only growing. Uh, I remember back in 2017, the Panaman Institute found that about two-thirds of oil and natural gas companies had experienced at least one OT compromise in the prior 12 months. I, I think there's every reason to believe that that trend is continuing, and I'm sure it's happening in other industry sectors as well. You know, I can tell you from what I've seen, what cyber criminals are trying to do today is they've taken the whole ransomware uh, process and they're moving it over to critical infrastructure. So they're not deploying ransomware uh, to, to extort money you know, for seized data or data that they're threatening to alter. They're actually threatening to shut down operations. And for you know, a, a manufacturer, for example, every minute you're down costs you know, thousands of dollars. And so there's added pressure there. Um, so being able to model those kinds of losses and then ultimately determine where a control could prevent that cyber criminal from wreaking havoc is going to be critical. I, I would say to DHS, before they start anything, they need to stop, look, and listen. Uh, it, its success with this is really going to depend upon their talking early and often with brokers and underwriters about what's going to be most helpful. I, I saw while I was in government at DHS and then prior you know, in, in service on the Hill, that many government programs go off the rails because their founders fail to cl clarify customer requirements from the very outset. And they, they often come up with amazing output, but that output isn't necessarily helpful to anybody. Um, so I, I think that while brokers and underwriters really would welcome any sort of modeling initiative that has a focus on OT, that we got to engage those early. I wouldn't limit it to the insurance industry. I also think states and localities need to be invited, along with critical infrastructure owners within those jurisdictions. They frankly have a huge interest in modeling. They want to know if a cyber attack happens in our geography and there's a cascading effect, what's going to happen to my economic base? You know, and in some respects, states and localities, counties, tribal governments, they have the most at stake. They want their 
jurisdiction to be economically attractive. And they want to be able to say to businesses, if you do business here, we're going to be able to be resilient and respond and recover quickly if there's an event. That's really their metric. And so, yes, have the insurance industry as part of the conversation, but have these, these interested parties and, and uh, different levels of government engaged as well because they have a hunger for it. And that's really part of DHS's mission too. How do we secure the homeland from cyber and physical attack? Private sector is essential, obviously, because they own most of, of, of the infrastructure. But um, really getting that viewpoint from states and localities who I think are really eager to open up conversations, coordinate better, encourage investments and controls and opportunities to sort of work a fix uh, in ways that are, are, are highly motivated and will be beneficial to their local populations. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate you being here with us. I know you're busy. <laughs> Thank you, George. It was a pleasure, really. All right, folks, we've got to transition into a commercial break right now, but stick with us. We'll be right back with a lot more cybersecurity talk with Chimin Bolin and Shad Satherwaite. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it, but it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization 
organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our second special guest of the evening, the CEO and president of Paradis Partners, Chimin Bolin. So, Chimin, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you so much, George. I appreciate having this opportunity to talk about one of my favorite subjects, cybersecurity. Well, we're so glad to have you. We have a lot of things to talk about. So, I want to kick off by uh, talking a little bit about your experience and your positions. You're in a very unique uh, position. Uh, you are both a company CEO and board of director for public and private boards. So how is the cybersecurity discussion framed uh, in both of these offices? Is it any different or is it the same? Uh, what, what is your experience? Uh, cybersecurity is discussed within an enterprise risk framework due to its impact on business continuity and resiliency. It's not a technology issue contained within organizational silos, but instead it's a business imperative that we regularly discuss between management and the board. Um, About 90% of the public company boards and about 72% of the private boards actually discuss cybersecurity on a regular basis according to an NACD study. It's very important because it needs to be addressed from a strategic, cross-department, economic perspective. It, it's truly enterprise-wide. You know, like other risks, George, such as regulatory, geopolitical, operational risk, or even a financial crisis like we're in now, each one of the risks, just like COVID, we have to assess its likelihood and impact, and we need to have a response strategy, mitigation, governance, and monitoring. The reason both the CEO, uh, which is in my current role, and in my role as Board of Director of Public and Private Companies, the reason we need to focus on it is just the sheer magnitude of damage. Simplistically speaking, let's say a beginner hacker maybe only spends $34 a month and he can penetrate a company and he can create at least 25000 worth of damage as a pure minimum according to a Deloitte report. This is not even taken into account stolen intellectual property, R&D, business processes or sensitive customer data or strategic M&A information. So cybersecurity is looked in the same vein, be it a CEO or board of director, because we are concerned about the operations of a company and its livelihood. We are, as an example, concerned about critical online sales channels that could be hampered by a cyber attack 
or even worse, our operations stop or damage to the brand. Um, I saw a study that said um, from 2019 to 2023, approximately 5.2 trillion in global value is going to be at risk because of cyber attacks. So board members and as managers, we have a fiduciary responsibility to protect shareholder value against cyber threats because they can penetrate a company, then implode, and then impact national security and the economy. So that's why if you look at it, both sides, the CEO, the management and board of directors treat cybersecurity at an enterprise risk level very seriously. So when you're on the board, what do you see the board's role in cybersecurity? How does that play out? That's actually a, a really good question because the board has a multifaceted governance and risk oversight role. We need to know our risk tolerance and our recovery plan. From my set of optics as audit chair, as the cyber tech lead, as the risk committee member, I'll share with you four examples. Our role, for example, at, at our board level, the first one, as an example, is we need to understand the legal implications of cyber risk, including public and SEC disclosure and reporting requirements. Secondly, as an example, we need to determine if the board has adequate cyber literacy to ask informed questions. One of our key roles is to be able to ask the right questions at the right time at the board meetings, questions of the CISO or the VP of IT or management. And the questions could be along the lines of making sure we understand the technical infrastructure to protect the data assets or to make sure we ask the questions to understand the scope of cyber coverage or we review the cyber risk dashboard. And that the dashboard includes like IT risk management, physical parameters, maturity assessments, and impact analysis. And along the lines of cyber literacy, we also need to make sure not only the board, but there's adequate, I'd say, organizational awareness and training on cybersecurity. Thirdly, boards need to ensure management has staffing, budget, and an enterprise-wide cyber plan. We need to look at investments. Are we investing enough so that corporate operating and network systems are not easily targeted? Have we reviewed the accountability and cyber responsibilities of each one of the executives and functional lines? Do we understand access management policies? Do we ensure data governance or information protection? Do we do we ask the right questions and understand and approve the way our response plan will be executed in case of breach? 
questions is very important. What the what board questions we ask is very important, even down to the level of understanding at a high level the ecosystem of third-party vendors and suppliers. You want to also make sure, as part of responsibility, that a post-mortem is conducted with the CISO if there is a threat and continually discuss vulnerability management. Um, above all, I'd say one of our key responsibilities as it relates to cybersecurity is to make sure we leverage threat intelligence leads and cyber intelligence so that we can make risk-informed decisions. And we integrate that intelligentsia into our automated security control systems. It's good for not only the CISO and the IT guys, but also for everything we do to perhaps put it within a context of using the National Institute of Standards and Technology Cyber Intelligence Framework. And the reason why it gives us a good foothold to help us understand at a board level our vulnerabilities, threats, and its impact. So, you know, obviously we're going through a crisis. There's a financial crisis. There's a huge pandemic out there. And it's introduced different types of risk, especially with the work from home strategies and the remote strategies that everyone's been engaged with uh, across different enterprises. Has the board's view on cybersecurity changed since the COVID-19 pandemic? Good question. On the boards that I'm on, we've always been focused on cybersecurity. But what has happened um, with COVID Cybersecurity has become an even much higher priority, not only for us, but for our peers. I'd say it's a basic need like shelter for the organization. We all know that threat actors, they take advantage of natural disasters, global health crisis, chaos, and fear. All of this is present, right, in our current COVID-19 state. But what's happening now, when I looked at all these different surveys, is one in three executives saw cybersecurity upticks, especially in phishing. You made a comment earlier that says, okay, work from home. And absolutely, during COVID, people immediately work from home. And data access was immediately decentralized. Many years ago, uh, we... We're primarily only concerned about a missing device. Now with 24 by seven access time anywhere from any device, that in itself, the mobility increases the higher probability of malware, web attacks, denial of service, malicious activity beyond just phishing. So cyber attacks is on the rise. And of course, the board has a responsibility to take note of it and be proactive. You know, in a relatively short time frame, often within days, some of the companies, including us, we were, might have been in remediation. But remember, other laggards, companies, might just be in education mode or auditing security measures as we shifted to the remote workforce. So they may be a couple of steps behind. But one other thing we have to remember is 
In addition to mobilizing these large sectors of our workforce to work from home, like you said, during shelter in place, we still have to run a business. We still have to launch products. We need to run supply chain, which often includes large multi-layered ecosystems, which are potentially ripe for the vulnerabilities we've been discussing. And at the same time, we have to concurrently conduct internal systems plus external inspections. So when you look at the board's view, we have a set of best practices. We make sure we have data governance. We identify the crown jewels a la the data assets. We have and understand local identification policies. We have tight permission access and testing. Many years ago, maybe over 10, 12 years ago now, is cybersecurity cyber is thought in this context even now. Companies realize, especially the boards, that cybersecurity is not, cyber threats is not a matter of if, but when a cyber attack would, would happen. And prepared companies have already analyzed, I'd say, a highest probability attack, but also low probability of attacks that have a high impact. I think the, the lessons learned going forward is, is let's, let's not have to learn after the fact. After we have to have a disastrous post-mortem review that caused irreparable damage, instead let's have a discipline to model scenarios and, con and conduct a pre-mortem, a proactive plan in place as we encounter COVID-19 and other crises. And I think that's the proactive future looking view that the boards I serve on have, as well as the, as well as the effective boards that I have seen. You know, it's so true historically. I don't know why it always takes a crisis to get things moving around, you know, this country. I mean, it, it seems like uh, even even like the digital transformation piece that's happened during the pandemic, I think we have like three years of digital transformation in three months. But um, what do you think are some of the most uh, hardest hit industries uh, during this COVID uh, pandemic? And did cybersecurity play any role in, in the damage that's been done? Cybersecurity plays a huge role. Bad threators cash in. Bad threators cash in from counterfeit medical masks to social engineering to delayed information to misinformation to complete data theft. So when you ask the question, the hardest hit industries, let me kind of take you back and reflect. Before and during COVID, the targets included infrastructure, financial services, and I'll, let me just kind of elaborate on it for a second. Targets such as the U.S. critical energy and utilities infrastructure, they're always been a target because of its plans and equipment designs that any of the other uh, governments, bagged actors would like to have. Universities, yeah, they have, they have valuable campus research or student or employee personal information. Financial services, like a drumbeat. 
its trade algorithms or in other personal information is extremely sensitive. So unfortunately, financial services has continuously, continuously been a target. But for financial services, it's been scaled up and the sophistication, I'd say, is upgraded. If I look at COVID, I think a couple of industries are particularly going to be challenged or, or currently challenged. One of them is healthcare. Healthcare already has scarce resources and staff and has lots of information already, patient information. I recall that in addition to the hospitals, where interruption in operations could be crippling and death to some people, even the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Department reportedly had a DDoS, um, a Distributed Denial of Services attack. And when I look at COVID now, as we start opening up and our needs continually to increase, I'd say medical suppliers and manufacturers are also targets. Smelling a profit from face masks in demand as counterfeits soared is, a, is um, fertile for bad threat actors. But realizing how critical drug vaccine is to the COVID, is to the COVID recovery, pharmas. My belief that pharmas will be even more vulnerable due to its secret formula, the testing process, as an example, and perhaps even some of the threat groups we're familiar with. Maybe there may be phishing by TA505, which with its Trojan and malware and botnets, ransomware, those and other groups may return with a vengeance to the vulnerable uh, drug discovery pharma sector. So those are some of the the, I think will be the hardest hit industries during COVID. And so we need to shore up our security plan for this. So interesting enough, you're actually one of the cyber and tech leads on one of the boards that you serve on. And these positions are becoming increasingly uh, common and are very valuable to the information security teams in these organizations because they look to uh, these individuals for support on the board. Uh, they speak the language. They understand more of what's going on. So how might some of the newer digital emerging technologies increase cybersecurity incidents and make the enterprise more vulnerable, in your opinion? Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, let me just give you uh, one thought. Greater connectivity, greater risk. We continuously see the increased usage of IoT-connected devices. We see private and public clouds explode for good reasons. We see the external networks and we see these massive system-to-system -system connections within the enterprise, within an ecosystem, or perhaps even attached to the government or critical infrastructure. These technologies and tools that have benefited us so much allowed us to scale VPN networks, portals, gateways, 
test infrastructure loads, um, single points of failure, manage access, access controls, remote logins. These same digital technologies, which enabled us to swiftly deploy a remote workforce and facil facilitate collaboration in a matter of days, can also increase cyber vulnerabilities if not properly managed, monitored, and remediated. What we have now is, I'd say, a very interconnected and global world where technology is globalized. Like I mentioned before, digital technologies have great benefits, but they need to be designed with a layered security strategy and cyber protection in its state, cyber protection in its DNA. This COVID pandemic heightened, in my opinion, the importance and acceleration of digital transformation and cybersecurity. And it forces us to lead and go towards a necessary transformation. You know, in the Chinese language, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger, the other opportunity. I'd say uh, it's a crisis communication credo, right? And in my belief, as we all personally experience COVID-19, it's my belief that successful recovery entails for individuals and especially companies and governments turning disruption into opportunities. We're gonna need innovation in technology, especially digital technologies, to ensure that we can make these opportunities a possibility during COVID. So I think it's very important digital technologies it is critical to our competitiveness and to our security. Let's just make sure we put the right cyber safeguards in place as we position for the future. Absolutely. Words of wisdom. Chi Min, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us this evening. Thank you so much, George. It was a pleasure. And uh, I hopefully I gave you... Um, a, uh, a set of uh, perspectives for the audience to think about. Well, you certainly did. And I really appreciate it again. I, you know, we can't wait to have you back. Well, maybe we'll have you back on a, on a panel uh, uh, or something that would be great to, to have. We're trying to put some panels together. So uh, we'll talk about that after the show, but uh, really appreciate it. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our third special guest of the evening, Director of Executive Business Programs in Aerospace and Defense at the University of Oklahoma, Mr. Shad Satherwaite. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. 
That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Director of Executive Business Programs in Aerospace and Defense at the University of Oklahoma, Mr. Shad Satherwaite. Shad, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thanks, George. It's uh, an honor to be here. Hey, it's great to have you on. Uh, we got a lot of great things to talk about. This has been a, a great episode. I think people are going to love uh, the, the mixture of guests that we have on and, and everything that we're talking about. But I want to talk a little bit about the Executive MBA Program in Aerospace and Defense uh, that, that you are the director of and, and how it came about so we can kind of level set the conversation for our audience. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. Uh, here at the University of Oklahoma, uh, we're always striving to uh, help serve our, our nation and community and state. Uh, we're, we're positioned right here by Oklahoma City, close to Tinker Air Force Base. And, and because of there's a, a, a very large aerospace and defense industry. You know, we're an oil state, and uh, the energy sector is the largest economic sector in the, the state of Oklahoma, but second to that is aerospace and defense. And so in, uh, there, there's been a, there was a need uh, to have a, a, some workforce development programs in the industry, and the Price College of Business uh, stepped up and said, hey, let's put together this executive MBA uh, that's going to focus on aerospace and defense, uh, people that are, it's going to be geared toward working adults, so people that are working can uh, take the uh, courses online uh, and uh, work around their work schedule. So it's mostly online. We do have three resident courses, a couple in Oklahoma City, and then one residency course uh, in Europe. Uh, 
that uh, will be about 10 days long. And so that's, that's kind of how it, it came about, just to address the need that we have here in our state to uh, develop managers in the aerospace and defense industry. Very cool. Very cool. So is information security integrated into the program yeah, curriculum? Yeah, a- absolutely. It's very important. In fact, there are, there are three uh, IT courses uh, that are in the program. Uh, they'll be taking one right off the bat uh, in information technology, and then they're, they're going to take another one in analytics. And then I, I think the, the capstone toward the very end, the last course they take is data management uh, and security, because the uh, the situation that uh, uh, we're in, if, if you're going to be working in that industry, that that really is kind of the, the buzzword. So it's very important, uh, uh, very important component of, a, of a, the course. So, Shad, how did you first become interested in information security? How did you get introduced to the industry? Yeah. In your yeah. Um, you know, I've been interested in this a long time. And, I, you know, when I was in college, uh, it sounds like we're about the same age. You know, the, the, the Internet was in its uh, – well, I'll tell you, I had a, a computer uh, science course, and uh, uh, this was in the 80s. And uh, I remember at the very end, toward the end, we were talking about these different operating systems. And, and my professor said, uh, now there's this new program coming out called Windows. You know, we'll see. It's, it's going to be different, and uh, I, I don't know where that's going to go. And so oh, I remember boy. him saying that, you know. Uh, but you probably remember the, the monochrome screens and all of that. So I, I was fascinated uh, when, when I, I moved out here to Oklahoma. And I was in graduate school, and I got a job at a computer store. And uh, this is at the same time, you know, the Internet's coming online and uh, the computers are getting faster to, to develop uh, and process a lot of the, the, the images and so forth after the World Wide Web had been developed. So I was, I was paying attention to that anyway, and that's really not my background. I'm a political science uh, I have a political science background, but but while we're in Oklahoma in in April of, of 1995, we just celebrated the 25th anniversary of this. Was the Murrah Building bombing? That was the federal building that was uh, in Oklahoma City, downtown Oklahoma City, was bombed. And uh, I was at, we were with the other graduate students there at the the University of Oklahoma. We, we heard about this, and you know we're we're hearing it on the news, and the the internet's in its infancy, and. And, and within, you know, just really a, a, a day or so uh, that we started seeing these, uh, uh, you know, comments on the, on the bomb that Timothy McVeigh made. We didn't know it was Timothy McVeigh at the time. We knew something about the type of bomb that went off. But they were talking about how it was built, how you can build it, and how you can make it even more devastating or deadly. And, and I just remember thinking, man. You know, here, here we have this wonderful tool for information, this, this Internet. It's new. And I always looked at it as a good thing. And it was the first time I realized, you know, this can be a tool for evil, too. You know, to get information like that out there uh, in the hands of people that may not otherwise have it. And, and it can be kind of a destructive thing. And so that was on my mind, you know, and, and, and it, it really struck me. That, uh, that, that something that could be used for good could be used for bad, too. Well, about four years later, still in Oklahoma, it's another disaster. This time it was a natural disaster. We had this, this uh, tornado that went through Moore in Oklahoma City, the city of Moore in, in Oklahoma, May 3rd, 1999. In fact, they still refer to it as the May 3rd tornado, you know, after more than 20 years. But uh, the, the, the tornado went through and just carved this path in some places a, a mile long 
mile wide. It went many more miles long, a mile wide, right through the, this metropolitan area here, just south of Oklahoma City, on up, and it went up, you know, nearly as far as, as Tulsa. Just wreaked a, a, a lot of havoc. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with this here. I, I get a call from my brother-in-law. He lives out of state, you know, and he said, uh, uh, he said, hey, I, I heard about that, that tornado out there, you know, and I, I heard about this, this, your church and how it, it was miraculously saved because the tornado went, uh, it was it through it and then it, it lifted and it went right over the church. It sat back down and went on, you know, carving this path of destruction. And, and we said, no, that, that didn't happen. We're familiar with that church. We've gone up there to help clean up, and that they use it as a, it didn't, the church didn't get hit. Uh, and, but, but it wasn't in the path of the tornado. It was, it was, you know, a mile to the north of it, and there was never any danger. He goes, no, no, uh, I read it on the Internet that, uh, that that tornado missed the church. It literally lifted over top and went down. And my wife and I looked at there and goes, he has no clue. You know, we've been there. But, but what, it, what it illustrated to me, George, was that, that, you know, we can be pretty gullible in the things we hear. And so, you know, when we're talking about information security, things that people see on the Internet, they, they take for gospel. And, and I, I think this is changing, you know, with, with generations now. But, but this is, again, early on where uh, uh, people read something online and, 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 and believed it as if it were, you know, real news. We hear a lot about fake news and things now. That, that's a term that's more widely used. But... Uh, you know, when, when something, uh, we get a, an email or something claiming something, for some reason there's something that we, we tend to believe about it because we see it. And so when we talk about phishing scams and things like that, you know, we can be pretty gullible, uh, I think. So these were just a couple instances that I think, you know, we've got to be careful uh, here. And I'm not, you know, a, an IT guy, as I mentioned, but th th these are some things that's been in the back of my mind as I've, I've looked at uh, and studied other things like the media and how information security is a very important thing to always be aware of. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about your extensive and distinguished military career in the beginning of the show, and now you're an educator. What are some of the biggest concerns that you have in information security, considering your background and, and what you do? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a lot of it is just that that information piece. You know, I, I have a, a little bit of background in, in the media and, uh, you know, talking about uh, uh, fake news and so forth, you know, and, and how that's uh, how that's come about. Fake news is really nothing that uh, is new. You know, there have been some stories, you know, in the past, uh, you know, what people trying to be over sensationalized, you know, the famous Mark. Twain uh, death when uh, uh, a newspaper said that, you know, he had died and Mark Twain had, you know, and he said, you know, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, you know, the, the, the reports of my death have been exaggerated, <laughs> you know, and he lived on another, you know, 15 years or so afterwards. But um, I, I am concerned about uh, information uh, getting out there. Uh, I am concerned about uh, other countries using it uh, for uh, uh, evil purposes, too. And uh, I, I think uh, uh, just paying attention to what's going on in the world and how information is being used a, as a tool to, uh, to promote or to destroy it is something that is a concern of mine. Yeah, I think there is a, a lot of information out there. It's not only information security at this point, but it's, it's all over the place and people are considering the authenticity of, of the data that's being presented to them in all kinds of ways. Um, it just seems to be out of control at this point to your 
you know, to your point about the, the fake news and things like that, you talk about weapons a little bit. It's really interesting about talking about cyber security and, and, and the internet as a weapon, right? And I know that there's a lot of writers out there, I, uh, particularly I know David Sanger from the New York Times believes that cyber weapons are the perfect weapon. Is he right about that? Is it the perfect weapon, a cyber weapon? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question, George. Uh, and it is something I, I, I think about a, a little bit. Uh, and and I heard, I've heard uh, David Sanger speak, and uh, uh, he, he, he does make some good points when he talks about that. Um, when, when I heard him, uh, he, was, uh, he had a picture, and it was a picture of a, of a file cabinet uh, at the Democratic National Headquarters or committee in, in Washington, D.C., and next to it on the table was a, a file server. And, and, and the, 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 the file cabinet was the file cabinet was broken into as part of the Watergate burglary in, in 1972. And the computer server next to it was the server that the Russians hacked during the, the 2016 presidential campaign. And the two were sitting side by side, and he makes this point. He said, look, you know, these are two things broken into, you know, both the Democratic Committee. But the file cabinet, people had to go in, right? They had, they had to break in. Uh, they had to physically be there. They had to open things up to, to get information, right? He said, and, and, and compare and contrast that with this file server where, you know, this was done remotely uh, overseas. They could go in. They could get a lot more information. The risk was minimal, uh, and and uh, this is the world that, that we live in. And so, when he, when he, the, the idea that, that you can weaponize information, I think, is interesting. And his point is it a perfect weapon? Um, I, you know, it, it may it may very well be. You know, because you think about how other countries could use that against each other. I mean, one, it, you know, it's deniable. You know, if, if you're hacked, how do you how do you trace that? I know there's you've had people on your show talk about these kind of things, and in the past, you, someone can always deny it, right? Uh, it, it it's hard to trace. Uh, it, it's hard to find. And, and it's cheap to produce, you know. And then, and then, how do you respond to something like this if uh, uh, if someone takes out an electric grid, you know, not being able to trace that, you know, is that can you say it's an accident? You know, how how do you how do you how do you respond to it? You know, uh, before if somebody you know brings in a let's say a, a, someone with a bomb or they, they, they bomb something with a missile and take out an electric grid, you know, that, that's clearly an act of war. You can respond uh, uh, proportionally. Now, in this particular situation, you know, we can't do that. And so I think in many ways what, what David Sanger is saying is, is right. It, it's very much the perfect weapon, you know, and you can just pay some hackers to sit in a basement, you know, to go in and uh, wreak this kind of havoc and, and not really pay any consequence for it yeah, uh, diplomatically or yeah. economically. Yeah. 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 It's been a big problem. Uh, attribution is, 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 is always been the problem. Right. And then that, that causes, you know, uh, policy issues. Like where do you draw the line? Like where is the line? And then what yeah. happens you know, after people cross the line? I don't think that's even been figured out yet. Right. But we yeah. got a big, what we, is the line? You're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we got a big election coming up this year. <laughs> I think uh, um, it, it's always in the news, cybersecurity with the election. And I think it's absolutely imperative that we secure our election process so that there's no question about the security of the election and that 
any kind of lack thereof um, affected the election in any way. So you, you research voting behavior. How, how important is it, you know, is cybersecurity during these elections? Uh, what say you about where we are today? Yeah, uh, it, is, it is an issue, you know, and, and I think it's been increasingly so since, since 26, the 2016 elections and, and the security of those. In elections, I think there's, there's always been some uh, element of vulnerability to elections, even even before electronics. I mean, you go back to the days when they had the polls and, you know, you hear about ballot stuffing, you know, for example, or, or people that uh, voted that, that, that had been dead. They registered to vote and come to find out they'd been dead for several years, you know. These kinds of things have always been out there. But but now it's it's taken to a different level when we're talking about the, the, the cyber world that we live in uh, here. And uh, it... It is it is a it is something uh, to to be concerned about it. And when we talk about ha- hacking elections, it, it can be done in a number of ways. You know, here in the United States, if we're talking about a national election, it's very hard to to probably. Uh, because every state has their own way of, of doing their elections uh, and, 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 and balloting. Uh, and, and, and you can't, there's, there's no national system, in other words, that somebody can hack into. But, but where the concern would be is, is really, if you're coming up with this presidential election, they're not really focusing on the national scene completely. I mean, you know, here in Oklahoma, it is a red state. Uh, neither the Republican nor the Democratic nominee have to really campaign here in Oklahoma, right? Uh, but other states, it's different. They're, they're swing states. They could go either way. And so the resources are going to be put in those swing states. And, and, and within those swing states, you might be talking about just a handful of precincts. If you can somehow get in there and sway those enough, you know, just a few votes, especially if they're close, then yeah, that can make a difference with national implications. And there are other things that could be done too, you know. Uh, maybe it's not tampering with the elections themselves, but but what about the the voting the 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 the, the, the uh, database of registered voters? Could you go in and all of a sudden make a lot of voters uh, ineligible? So when it comes time for them to vote. Uh, you can probably predict how they're going to vote because they've got their party affiliation there. Uh, they go to vote and they say, sorry, you're not registered, you know, on, on election day. And they say, wait a minute, I am. I voted here in the past. Well, by the time they get that resolve, you know, that, that could be just enough to, again, tip the scales there. And that's not to even mention the information or disinformation campaigns that, that can take place you know, along with that too. So, you know, I know we're aware of this and we're probably going to be more mindful in 2020 than we were in 2016 because of what's out there. But but I do think cybersecurity is going to be very important for the states that run those elections this year. In your view, do you think most Americans are concerned about cybersecurity or is it just something they see on the news and it really doesn't concern them because they don't think it affects them in any way? Yeah. You know, the Gallup poll asks the, the, these questions. They always ask uh, every year, you know, what's the most uh, uh, important thing facing our, our government today? Or they'll, they'll be asked about, you know, crime and, and, and so forth and what, uh, what, what types of, of crime uh, are, are they worried about? And, and, and the Gallup poll shows that 
uh, yeah, more and more people are concerned about cyber crimes. In fact, uh, one, one uh, study they did, this has been a couple years, said that uh, one in four Americans have experienced cyber crime in, in some way. And so they're worried about things like identity theft uh, and other things. We think about traditional crime, but uh, there, there, that is something that uh, Americans have become more and more concerned about uh, as they, they've either experienced it or had family members or friends that have experienced it. So what trends do you see in terms of elections and national security, especially national security, right? Because we like to talk about geopolitical issues and how cybersecurity affects those uh, issues on the show a lot. And especially, you know, I think cybersecurity is one of the top national uh, security issues that our country is facing. So I'd love to get your opinion on that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think I think we'll be seeing a, a lot of things because of, of public opinion being concerned about uh, cyber crime and so forth, and and being mindful that uh, there's a lot of things that are out there. I, I think people are going to be, uh, you know, continually cautious on things. You know, it's interesting in my in my classes, um, uh, and I teach you know young young people, uh, college age uh, people that have grown up in in the social media environment. And uh, they have Facebook accounts, and and and, and uh, their 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 information is out there. And and a, and a few years ago, you remember when Edward Snowden uh, during that incident there, when when he left uh, the country, was in the news. And when we were talking about privacy uh, with with uh, the, these students, and uh, uh, you know, does the government you know have the uh, the, the right to, to collect information on you and so forth. And I think the, the general consensus is no, but, but, you know, I, I've seen, I've seen just a kind of a trend over, over the years, you know, I've been teaching now for maybe, Oh, you know, 25 years. Uh, and, uh, in the past, it seemed people were more sensitive, but but the students after that, I remember this conversation very well. It's like, well, that's no big deal, you know, to have our, you know, they they weren't concerned about privacy as much. Now, I, I can't say this applies to all uh, Americans, but as we, we we use social media and put our lives out there anyway, then then I I, I don't think that would be as much of a of a concern as as it perhaps was a generation ago. Uh, I remember uh, uh, Robert Gates was the uh, uh, he, he was director of the CIA and later Secretary of Defense. Uh, he, he came to the University of Oklahoma and spoke, and it was around this time, and he was asked about uh, d- data uh, security and, and, uh, uh, and in light of the Snowden revelations and so forth. And he said, you know, he said, uh, companies like Google and Amazon have a lot more information on you than the government does. And, uh, you know, uh, he was speaking, you know, just plainly, and, and I think that's right. But but uh, I, I think uh, we'll see some of these uh, you, you know some of these trends. Uh, we'll see more and more of that you know domestically on the national security front. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Getting back to your question about David Sanger using the term you know the perfect weapon, um, I'm amazed at countries like like North Korea. Um, you know they, they they don't have a lot of resources. It's it's a it's a pretty poor country. But, but they've got some people that have been trained, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty bright and able to pull off some of these hacks that they've been able to do. It's pretty sophisticated. And, and I would think some of these countries see this as a, as, as a possible trend, other countries using cyber 
uh, more and more as a as a weapon or weaponizing this information uh, in a way too. So I, I don't think that's going to stop uh, because it's it, it, it's fairly easy to do. And some of the reasons that I mentioned, some of the reasons that David Sanger had, had referred to too, that you mentioned, I, I think are, are reasons that will uh, continue to see uh, more of these things. It's all the more reason just to be on guard both personally as citizens and I think as a country too, just to be mindful of it. Well, Shad, thanks so much for coming on the show. You know, I, I can't wait to have, have you back. I mean, there's so many interesting things that uh, you have experience in and knowledge about, and I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about them. Well, I'd be, I'd be privileged to, George. You've you got, you got a great show here. You bring in some wonderful guests, and I, I just feel honored to be a part of that today. Awesome. Awesome. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.